We have a lot to cover this morning. As I alluded to you very early on, it was never my intention to preach through every word of the book of Job. This is a selective study, uh, and it's been very difficult to sift through things and, and, and try to identify the things that were more essential than some of the other things, perhaps. Uh, but anyway, we're going to pick up with chapter 40 this morning. And uh, I'm not even going to read the last little bit. I'll leave that to you of chapter 42. Uh, so anyway, let's read. Let's hear the word of God. Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer. Remember this conversation that's taking place between Job and God. Then Job answered, and, and answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you contend or condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the outflowing of your anger, and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I acknowledge to you that your own hand can save you. You understand why he's saying to Job? He's saying, you do these things, and if you can do these things, then I will do this. Behold, Behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold his strength in his loins, in his power, in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs like bars of iron. He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword for the mountains yield food for him. Where all the wild beasts play, under the lotus plant he lies, in the shelter of the reeds and in the marsh. For his shade, the lotus tree uh, trees cover him, the willows of the brook surround him. Behold, if the river is turbulent, uh, he is frightened, he is confident. Though Jordan rushes against his mouth, can one take away, uh, take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? Can you draw out Leviathan? With a fish hook, or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he, he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird, or will you put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can he feel his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears. Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, the hope of a man is false. 
He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. I will not keep silence concerning his limbs or his mighty strength or his, God, or, or his goodly frame. Who can strip off his outer garment? Who can come near him with a bridle? Who can open the doors of his face? Around his teeth his terror, his back is made of rows of shields shut up closely as with a seal. One who is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. His sneezings flash forth light and his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. Out of his mouth go flaming torches, sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils comes forth smoke as from a boiling pot and burning rush or rushes. His breath kindles coals and a flame comes forth from his mouth. In his neck abides strength and terror dances before him. The folds of his flesh stick together, firmly cast on him and immovable. His heart is hard as a stone, hard as the lower millstone. So he raises himself up. The mighty, uh, when he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid at the crashing. They are beside themselves. Though the sword reaches him, it does not avail, nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. He counts iron as straw, and bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee, for him slings, or, uh, for him sling stones are turned to stubble. Clubs are counted as stubble. He laughs at the rattle of javelins. His underparts are like sharp potsherds. He speaks or spreads himself like a threshing sledge on the mire. He makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. Behind him, he leaves a shining wake. One would think the deep to be white-haired. On earth, there is not his like, a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. And Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. It was this that hides counsel without knowledge. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. This is God speaking again. I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, this is still Job speaking, I'm sorry. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now God speaks. After the Lord has spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Tenemite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer for a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer in verse 10 and the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before and I'm not going to read anymore just understand that when all is said and done that Job 
uh, is blessed beyond measure compared to what he would have been before. I would imagine at this point, Job really wishes that God was not going to say anything else. He's hoping that God is finished with him. Yet he remains on the proverbial hot seat. A place that Job had longed to be for now, for during this, the whole duration of this great tribulation that he has gone through, he's pleaded, he's desired, he's wanted to stand before God. And now that it's happened, I think Job probably would rather be any place on earth than where he is. He's hoping that God is done with him. But he's not. He's not finished. I mean, Job has alluded to this all through, that he wanted this opportunity. But now that he's had this opportunity, he realized it's been a terror. You need to understand it's been a terrifying experience for Job to be where he is. Far more than any of the terror that he's experienced through the tribulations he's been experiencing for all of these months. We need to be careful. Sometimes we wish for things, and then when they come, they're not exactly what we thought they were going to be. In chapter 40, verse 7, he says, Brace yourself or gird up your loins for action. In military terms, a military translation of that might be prepare yourself for battle. <laughs> These are the words of God to Job. You've wanted it, and now you are going to get it. Job has wanted so much to be in the right that he, in essence, has declared God to be in the wrong. God says to him, will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you might be right? We all know what it means to suffer from, I want to be right always disease. I don't imagine any of us appreciates it when people prove us to be wrong in a disputed matter. Very often, even after we've been proven wrong, we refuse to accept. <laughs> and we continue to fight, right? What I'm saying here is we all, sh we all, we all know what it's like to be in that place. There's no one in this room that likes to be proven wrong. Some people take it very much more graciously than others. But internally, none of us takes it very well. 
We have this incessant need to be right, to always be right. And it's downright embarrassing on those occasions when people show that we are in the wrong. How easy is it for you to ever admit that you actually have been wrong? It's not something that comes naturally to any of us. But sometimes that's the only thing we can do. Sometimes that's the very best thing that we can do. One of the things that will help us is to remember this is God is always right. He's never been wrong one time, ever. It's impossible for God to be wrong. He never will be wrong. And he's the only one that can be said about. As I alluded to in in, in verses 9 through 14, God just throws some things at him, basically saying to him, "If if you can do these things, then we'll have this conversation. But again, it's a list of things that are, that are absolutely impossible for Job to do. God already knows what the answer is to all of these questions. And that is that Job has no answer. At all. Later on in chapter 40... Job brings these kind of these mysterious creatures, the behemoth first and Leviathan second, into the picture. Uh, you know, brings to mind some questions, and, and, and one of those is a question uh, Have either of these animals ever really existed? Perhaps maybe they're fictitious animals that, that Job was aware of, maybe from mythology or something, just common knowledge or understanding among people that there were these, these unbelievable monstrous animals that lived at one time uh, or another. Could, it could be that. It could be that there was an, it was an animal that existed at the time of Job but no longer does and there's no fossil evidence or whatever of it. We need to understand that fossil record is not perfect, that it's got major gaps in it. Could it be an animal that still exists today in some form? This is one of the most disputed things about the book of Job, is what are these two creatures? I think people are looking for answers to questions they don't really have to have. (laughs) I mean, they are these fearsome, awesome animals. Behemoth, which seems to be a terrestrial animal, and the Leviathan, which seems to be aquatic, monstrous, terrifying. No ways, no way on earth that man can have any control over either one of them. They have their way with whatever they want to have their way with. Man can do nothing to stand before them. Very commonly, people today will 
kind of conclude the behemoth was something like a hippopotamus. It's probably the most frequent answer to you. And, and let me just tell you something, and that is you may not have been around hippopotami in the wild. Your, your vision or your idea of a hippopotamus and the, the manner that they, they are and their behavior is something like you find in the Disney movies. But that's not reality. That hippopotami are ferocious creatures. They kill more people in Africa every year than crocodiles do. There's some people in this room that can appreciate this a little bit more than the rest of you. Walter's one and Dick and Barb are two and I'm one. We've seen a large herd of hippopotami. These guys are humongous. They're way bigger than what you think that they are. You know, we typically see them swimming around in the water, so you don't really get any sense of the enormous size of these things. But when you see them walking on the beach, they are huge. And they are ferocious. They attack the big 50-foot boat that you're in. Also Nile crocodiles in Lake Edward, right there. Same place you find the, the hippos. Massive reptiles that can be 16 to 20 feet long. Like dinosaurs and we need to understand that new earth creationists have concluded basically that these two creatures are dinosaurs the behemoth is a terrestrial dinosaur and the leviathan is an aquatic dinosaur could they be right yeah but at the same you know we get so wrapped up in these kinds of things sometimes trying to come to conclusions and get answers for things that we don't really need to have answers for. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if these things still live today or they lived at one time or they never actually did live, except in folklore. They just simply represent an awesome force that man cannot stand before with any hope at all. Every time they will eat his lunch. There's a sense, my friends, in, in, in the Leviathan too, if you read this, there's some, in, some of it, the description of it sounds like a dragon. Breathing forth fire and all this stuff? Did dragons actually used to live on the face of the planet? I doubt it. This sounds very much like a dragon. What you and I would describe as a dragon. Again, very often we get wrapped up in questions, trying to derive answers that we really don't have answers for, but by gosh, we're going to find an answer. And how much time do we consume doing that sort of thing sometimes? And, and, and all the time, just kind of passing over the real point, the real point is this, is we're talking about something that evokes absolute fear in the hearts of people. 
that they have absolutely no power over at all. None. What is it that evokes fear within us? There's a sense in which that is our behemoth. That is our Leviathan. The things that cause deep-seated fear in you and I. I want to say this before I go any further because it's very important. The word grace never appears in the book of Job at all. It's not there. But what I would say to you is that grace actually undergirds everything that you find in the book of Job. Job believes that he's set apart from his other, these other three guys because he is very righteous. And ultimately, we know that it ultimately means that he is self-righteous. He really believes that he is a step above everybody else. That he's not the sinner that they are. Because he has such a very great heart for God and the people around him don't. We talked a little bit about this last week, and that is there's a sense in which Job was self-righteous. He believed that he was good enough. That if anyone in the world was good enough to meet God's standard, it was certainly him. That is self-righteousness. And God will allow us to have none of it. Even as good as Job was from what we've seen, it's just an inkling of a picture of just how far short Job really was. That what Job deserved because of the life that he lived was even far worse than what he got. Even though he stood hands above everybody else. It's so easy to continue with self-righteousness. It's so easy to come across as being self-righteous. That's because it's so easy to see the sin in other people and at the same time to be blind to our own. Job believed that the standard was being good enough. And if anybody was good enough, it was him. He didn't realize that the standard is absolute perfection. Being perfect, always, in everything. Not once. Not one single time. Perfection. God's perfection. You understand that the book of Job is screaming, crying out for somebody like Jesus? 
for someone who can do for us what we are totally incapable of doing for ourselves. I mean, Job's alluded to the fact that, you know, a number of times he says that he knows that his Messiah lives and then he will take his stand upon the earth and, you know, he knows he has this heavenly advocate and et cetera, et cetera. I just want to say this again this morning. You've heard me say it a number of times. It's a lie from the pit of hell and the whisperings of our own sinful nature to believe and practice the idea that we are in any way deserving of God's love and salvation and good pleasure. Any of us. Joe was here this morning. Who here would be able to compare their life spent for God to the life of Joe by any stretch of the imagination? Who here would be able to demonstrate a realistic faithfulness to God in their worship, in their prayer life, in the manner in which they conducted themselves among men? So if Job fell short, where do you think we would fall? (laughs) Even the very best of us. My whole point, guys and gals, is grace, grace, grace. It's not here, but it's under all of this. It's intertwined with all of this. That the only solution to the dilemma of all men and women anytime, ever time, is God's grace through Christ Jesus. It's not that some of us need Jesus a little bit, and some of us need Jesus a little bit more, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's that we all desperately and absolutely need Jesus, and without Jesus, we have no hope at all. None of us. Not one of us. He saves us. We in no way, shape, or form save ourselves. Do we really believe that but by the grace of God go I? I hope so. In chapter 42, verses 79, we're introduced to the concept of people acting as intermediators between people, other people, and God. This is where Job prays for his three friends. God instructs him to pray for his three friends. That's what we call intercession. If you look at the Old Testament, it was one of the primary responsibilities, purposes of the priesthood to intercede on the part of the people, to stand between the people and God You understand that that's what Job is doing here. He's acting as an intercessor between God and these three guys. He prays for them.
we play a similar role. There is a priesthood in the New Testament. Some people think the priesthood disappears in the New Testament. The Levitical priesthood does, in fact. But it does not mean that the priesthood ends. The interesting thing is this. Is that other than Jesus, the title priest is not ascribed to a single person in the New Testament. Once you get beyond the Levitical priest. It, however, is applied to every single believer. First Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of his grace. In other words, if you are a believer, you are a priest. Which means this, that we play a lot of roles. And one of those is this, is we are intercessors. If believers don't pray for the salvation of unbelievers, who do you think is going to? <laughs> Anybody? <laughs> this is pretty clear in the New Testament. Jesus says this very fact in Revelation in a couple of places. Revelation 1, 5, and 6. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests, uh, to his God and Father, and to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Revelation 5, 10. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. But by your blood you ransom people from God, from every tribe and language, people of every nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. So the question that lies before us this morning is, are we serving as priests? Are we doing that? In essence, are we interceding on behalf of other people? In short, are you praying for the salvation of those who have yet to come to Christ as, as Savior? Do you have a list of people that you pray for regular for their salvation? I would imagine if you went back and began to ask questions of people that had something to do with your own coming to faith, that you would find that there were people that were praying for you. I know it's true for me. There were a lot of people that were praying for me. The whole church was praying for me. I hope that you all have a prayer list. And I hope on that prayer list is not just the names of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. I hope on that list is the name of people that are unbelieving that you know. And then you are constantly and continually interceding on their behalf and lifting their names before the throne of grace. Are you doing that? Sometimes you're talking about family members. How many people here have children and grandchildren who don't know Jesus Christ from Adam? Adam. 
I know you're praying for them. If you're not, I would really wonder why. What's stopping you? What's keeping you from it? Intercession is one of the major aspects of our prayers. It needs to be a big part of them. We are priests in the kingdom of Christ. If we don't do that, who is going to? And let me just say this. You may pray for someone your whole lifetime and they never come to Christ. But I doubt if you do this on a regular basis that you're going to have the experience of of never seeing anyone come to Christ that you've been praying for. Most of you have probably already experienced this in life. You've seen people that you've known and you've maybe you've witnessed to more actively, but you certainly prayed for who have eventually come to faith in Jesus Christ. And their life has been transformed. And they know all of the great blessings and gifts that you have known at this point now. I don't know what could possibly bring more joy in the life of a believer than having the sense that I've helped to pass my faith on to someone else. What greater gift could we possibly give to anybody? Now, I just want to challenge us with the idea that I would imagine if we have family members that fall under the category unbelieving, they're very much in our prayers, but maybe not so much prayer for other people. Maybe a few close friends that we have or something along those lines, but our prayers need to go way beyond There's all kinds of joys to be had as a believer, and one of the greatest joys that you will have is if you ever have the sense of playing a major part in the conversion of someone else. Now, I'm not sure there's a greater joy that we could possibly know in life than to know that my life in Christ helped to lead this person to Christ. God used me. So let me ask you something. As we finish up the book of Job, has it had any impact at all upon you? Seriously. Is your life different? Because we've done this. I didn't enter into this with rose-colored glasses. I knew this was going to be a very difficult task. 
And it's something I try to avoid. Because most people do. And one of the reasons is this. Is this like a scalpel that cuts very deep into us in ways that we don't want to be cut. It helps us to see who we really are, not who we think that we are. Well, Job's life on earth from this point on is more blessed than it was before. Bigger family, more riches and wealth. But do you understand that it's the trial and tribulation that Job has gone to that has brought him to a plateau that he had never known before. It has brought him to a place of the fullness of joy that he has never experienced in all of his years. And it took all of that to get him there. Righteous Job. So what do you think it takes for God to get you and me there? Just always remember this. The trial and tribulation is promised to us. We are promised to suffer. We are. That we can never lose sight of the simple fact that all of our suffering serves a very good purpose. Your suffering is never useless. Your suffering is never worthless. God always has an intention and purpose in it. And let me tell you, one of the things that's obvious is this. What did he use it for in Job's life? You think at least to some degree it was to humble Job? To show him what things really are? Rather than this false idea of life and everything it encompasses that he had? This is what God had to do to bring righteous Job to his knees before his If that's true, why would we believe for a minute that our life is just going to be hunky-dory from now on? I'm going to tell you this this morning. God is going to do anything and everything He has to to break you. And me. Because we need to be broken. Do you understand that's the difference between the pre-Job and, now, and the now-Job? Job is broke, a broken man now. He understands now. Going through suffering, trial and tribulation is never fun for anybody. And if people just seem to like to really love it, I think there's something wrong with them. But I just want to challenge all of us as we're, we're, we're concluding this book that suffering in our lives 
always serves a great, greater purpose for us and for other people too. I don't know if God has special places in heaven for special people, but I'm sure if they, he does, that Job's certainly sitting at the top of the heap. I hear people say sometimes, you know, when I, I go to glory, I'm not going to really care too much about anything other than the fact that I'm there. And something we don't talk about very often is this, is that, that we all have the heavenly reward of heaven, but our heavenly reward will not be the same. It's sad sometimes when people think they can just settle for the minimum. I'm just going to be in heaven and I don't care if I'm sweeping the streets or whatever. I'm just going to be glad I'm there. Please don't have that mindset. Don't. And just remember Christ in all of this. You can't think about Job without thinking about Jesus. Jesus saves us from this. And far worse. Forever. We're moving on to the Gospel of John next week. I'm sure some of you will see, will breathe a sigh of relief with that. <laughs> uh, but anyway, my hope, I don't know about you, but I have really been affected by this. And there's been some sins in my own life that I maybe knew about or didn't know about and didn't even acknowledge that have surfed more in recent times and I'm having to deal with some things that I have pushed back and forgotten about and tried to suppress and this that and the other that have come out really nasty and ugly and have been very hurtful to people I care a whole lot about so God's working in me and there's evidence of that and I'm thankful for it so, amen